0: Amen. Let's be seated. Well, great and mighty is the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we are coming to the end of the book of Colossians, and we have finished the doctrinal teaching of Paul, all of those things that he wanted the Colossians to know, to protect them and arm them against the false teachings that were prevalent in those days. This section of the letter is entitled Final Greetings, and it contains instructions for us about faithful fellowship in Christ and our mutual commitment to gospel ministry, And today, we're going to flesh out the names of these people, because you notice in Paul's letters, he always names a bunch of people at the end. Um, And we're going to flesh them out a little bit, give them a little bit of background. We're going to look at his final prayer for grace to the Colossians, and we're going to summarize what we have learned from this small but extremely important book. Next week, um, I'm going to teach on light, which is our mission statement our vision statement and we're going to talk about that and it's important to see how this acronym for light and its scriptural support tie in with the message of Colossians because that's what we've been talking about in Colossians is how does the church work and the church works because Jesus Christ Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of all and that's what makes it work and that boast that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord of all flows from one and only source And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in this letter to the Colossians, Paul talked not only about a means of individual salvation, but also a comprehensive vision of life under King Jesus playing out in the Roman world, just like we have to have it play out today in the world in which we live. And as this section that we're going to read today shows, this was not a letter to be read privately. But it was read publicly and performed publicly by one of the fellows that's mentioned at the end of the letter. And a public reading at that time, a public reading of the things said in Colossians was a political, economic, public announcement that King Jesus rules the cosmos. In the light of everything that they were being told at that time in their lives and in their communities and in their country, King Jesus ruled the cosmos. God has conquered the powers. He has delivered all of the humans from sin and its powers. He has reconciled the entire cosmos to himself in, through, and under Jesus Christ. The message of Colossians is about living in the freedom of a new kind of community like we have here. And it provides a vision of human victory in the face of an evil that reaches cosmic proportions. And we don't need to look very far to see why that's relevant today. Evil of cosmic proportions. So let's open God's word and read together from Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him... Onesimus, your faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who was called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. is useful for teaching, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, for correction, including these words of Paul, which contain greetings from various people and greetings to various people, Lord. Speak to our hearts. Put your words in our hearts that we might know you, that we might know the others in this congregation, and that we might be salt and light to the community around us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in these final greetings, Paul names a number of his co-ministers and briefly outlines the roles played by them. We must also remember that Timothy is one of these co-workers as well. He was mentioned in chapter 1. It's kind of like a hall of fame, isn't it, the people that are writing with Paul and that Paul is sending greetings from. The, Paul's description here is kind of like a verbal group portrait and adds a personal touch to up until this point has been a doctrinal letter. I remember a sermon once about uh, the paralytic whose friends dug a hole in the roof, the four four friends dug a hole in the roof to lower him to Jesus, and the preacher said that one of the points of that sermon or that, that scripture was that you should have four friends willing to dig a hole in the roof for you, And these are Paul's friends. These are people that are willing to do that. And that's true about every one of us. Do we have friends like that that would do that for us? Not necessarily unbelieving friends, but friends in this church, friends in the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ that would do anything for you to bring you to Jesus Christ, to heal you, to let you know what needs to happen in your life. And Paul's words about his co-workers are meant to show us that he could not do this job alone, Nobody can. God's leaders always need support from other believers. So in Exodus 17, 8 through 13, we read, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men, go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. And so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword, because he had friends to hold him up. And recall also in Numbers 11, the Lord said to Moses, Moses was saying, how can I do this? And God said to Moses, gather 70 men from the elders of Israel who will help you bear the burden of the people with you. We all need people around us. Paul had his people here. Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Ecclesiastes 4 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's what we need, friends. We need people like that in our lives, people from the fellowship of Jesus Christ who will keep us warm so we don't have to lie alone. That will lift us up when we fall down. That will encourage us when we're going through whatever challenges that we might have. Paul looks at all of these scriptures, all of the scriptures actually in the light of our work for the Lord not just dealing with our own individual struggles. We have struggles, yes, and God cares deeply about those and wants us to pray to him about those. But Paul here in this letter is encouraging us in our work for the Lord. In Paul's eyes, we serve the Lord Christ that we serve him only. And this requires the constant support and upbuilding from other believers in our church. So Paul tells them that Tychicus will relate to them all of his struggles and all of the personal information which is not included in the letter. Because people would have wanted to know what's going on, how you doing, what is it like being in a Roman jail, how's the food, you know, that kind of stuff. He is also the person who will be reading and performing this letter for the congregation. So he will stand up, read the letter, perform those parts that need to be performed. And Paul describes Tychicus as a beloved brother first. Secondly, a faithful minister. And third, a fellow servant or fellow slave for the Lord. Now, this fellow, Tychicus, is mentioned five times in the New Testament. We see him first in Acts 20, verse 4, where Paul was planning to return to Jerusalem from Ephesus with the offering. And along the way, he was repeatedly warned that trouble awaited him in Jerusalem. But Tychicus remained with him, even knowing that trouble was going to be there. And as Paul wrote Colossians, it had been more than two years since his arrest in Jerusalem. He had survived a plot by the Jewish leaders to murder him. This is Paul. uh, He had survived trials before Felix, Festus, Agrippa, and an action-packed voyage to Rome. Now Tychicus was probably with him during that time as well, and he was definitely with him in his imprisonment in Rome, And after Paul's release, Tychicus remained with them. And so when Paul needed a temporary replacement for Titus as pastor of the church on Crete, Tychicus was considered for that role. Those would be big shoes to fill. So this is a fellow of some substance. And at the very end of Paul's life during his second Roman imprisonment, Tychicus was still with him. Paul wanted to see Timothy, but since Timothy was pastoring the Ephesian church, Paul sent Tychicus as a temporary pastor for the Ephesian church. Clearly, he was a reliable man, much trusted by Paul. And during the writing of this book, Colossians, Tychicus was in Rome during the first imprisonment. And Paul entrusts him to deliver this letter to the Colossians and also to the Ephesians and to the Laodosians. And probably entrusted him with the letter to Philemon as well. And he's not only delivering and performing the letter to the Colossians, he's also going to bring them information about Paul's affairs and update them about the circumstances of the church in Rome and with Paul himself. And Paul lists his credentials, and they're credentials that we should all aspire to as beloved, a brother, faithful, a servant, a fellow servant, a a slave to Jesus Christ. And recall that the word beloved, we talked about that earlier in the letter, is not simply tender feelings. Oh, he's a great guy. In Christ, the baptized are chosen, holy and beloved and become a part of the people of God as well as of God's mission in the world. And in the end, they will inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus was God's beloved son at the baptism. Paul describes Epiphras with these same words in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Do we know fellow laborers for Christ who we would describe like this? Are there people that would describe us like this? Beloved, faithful, servants, slaves. Paul's entire circle of friends appear to be this kind of person. Paul sends this dear person to encourage their hearts. And this encourage would likely have involved instruction as well as other personal matters. Are we encouragers when we go and talk to people We go to other churches, we go on vacation, we see family, we see other circles of people. Are we encouragers, especially in this day and age, or do we spread doom and gloom? Do we enjoy doing that? Are we Debbie Downers, so to speak? You know, my daughter and I had a conversation once about that. You know, um, she was telling me her plans and her dreams, and I thought that I was being practical and helpful. In pointing out, well, yeah, the women are all laughing because they know what guys do, right? I thought I was doing a good job. She thought I was squashing her dreams. We need to be building people up. Are we building up those who share our lives? These are the people that were surrounding Paul. They were building him up in his ministry and in his walk with Jesus Christ. And that's our job for the people around us and our families, our friends in this church. Well, the Colossian church would probably not have known much about Tychicus, but they would have well known the next person that he mentions, Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was the famous slave about whom Paul will write to Philemon. He was a runaway from Philemon who was converted under Paul, Onesimus was. He grew up in his faith and his repentance. He experienced fellowship and friendship with Paul And is now asked by Paul, return to the place that you ran away from having done some heinous crime there because that's your job as a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul notes his transformed character. He calls him a faithful and dear brother, which he said the same thing about Onesimus, I mean, about Epiphras, he said the same thing about Tychicus. And Paul provocatively calls Onesimus brother. He was a slave, and Paul's calling him brother. And Paul's saying he's not a slave; he's an equal. He's not a subordinate any longer. He is of the same status as you in Jesus Christ. Now, imagine being Philemon and hearing for the first time, "Okay, this guy that's coming back, your slave, he's a brother now. He's not your slave anymore." That'd be pretty convicting, huh? Onesimus means the useful one. The Greek is the useful one, which was an honorable title for a slave because it meant he was useful. could do a lot of things. And by God's transforming grace, he now is living up to the true meaning of his name as being useful, but he's also faithful. He's wholly reliable. He's not a runaway anymore. He's not avoiding trouble. And whatever his transgression was, he's now been redeemed. Tychicus lends credibility to Paul's claims about Onesimus just in case the Colossians need to be further convinced that he's now a faithful and dear brother in Christ. So Paul doesn't send him back alone. He sends him back with someone who has credibility, who can tell them he really is a believer, he really is a brother in Christ. And so after we get the greetings, uh, we get introduced to Tychicus and Onesimus, Paul now sends six greetings to the Colossian church from six different people, and he greets one household, that of Nympha. Now the first three greetings are sent by Jewish co-workers, the second three were presumably Gentiles, and we see in here that Paul grieves the fact that there was only three people of the faith, three Jews that had supported him in his ministry. Now, this guy, the first guy, Aristarchus, accompanied Paul during his lengthy missionary, lengthy ministry at Ephesus. And he was recognized by the Ephesian rioters as one of Paul's traveling companions. You go back to Acts and see that. You know, I love reading. Some people really don't like to read all the names in the Bible. But they're fascinating because after you read the Bible several times, you start to see the connections. And even the Old Testament genealogies are like, well, that's pretty boring. But they're not because the names appear again and again because God names people for a reason in the Bible. And so here, Aristarchus was in the book of Acts as one of Paul's traveling companions. He was also present at the beginning of Paul's sea voyage to Rome and probably accompanied him all the way to Rome. Paul describes him as a fellow prisoner. And the term Paul uses for prisoner here was connected with being a prisoner of war. Because, in fact, Paul knew he was at war with the forces of evil. Not necessarily with the Roman Empire as such, but with the forces of evil. Paul next sends greetings from Mark. Now, Mark is the cousin of Barnabas, and they are instructed to welcome Mark. We met Barnabas in Acts 4.36. His name means son of encouragement, Barnabas. Um, And he accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey, and they brought with them Mark, otherwise called John Mark. And we learn here that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. We don't see that in Acts, but we see that now. And that might further explain the rift between Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts, why they differed so wildly about what should happen with the man that abandoned them. Okay, it's Barnabas' cousin. But in the many years since that incident, there had obviously been a reconciliation because Paul no longer regards him as a liability, but recommends him highly and even includes him among those who have been a comfort to him. In fact, even in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, he says that Mark has been very useful to him in the ministry. The Bible provides us still another lesson on forgiveness and on not holding grudges or resentments. Think about the waste that Paul never forgave him, never gave him the opportunity to redeem himself in his sight. Because after all, Mark wrote one of the Gospels. One of the Gospels. Now the scripture doesn't tell us how this reconciliation took place, but it's quite possible that Peter played a part in it because Peter in 1 Peter 5.13 calls Mark my son. And tradition links Peter and Mark and it's commonly believed that Mark's gospel came about as the result of Peter telling him all of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. A lot of people say it's really the gospel of Peter, but Mark, John Mark wrote it out. But of course, Peter knew by experience that there was hope for those who had fallen into the sins of disloyalty and cowardice. Do we believe we failed the Lord Jesus? Did we chicken out when given an opening to tell someone the gospel? I do that. I'm sure we all do that. But there's hope because God promises more opportunities will come, and he casts these sins behind him, and he continues to use us to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now Paul says that they have received some sort of instructions concerning Mark, but we don't know what they were or who they came from. But in any event, they were not to shun him because of his previous failure, but they were to welcome him. And Mark's life is a testimony to God's ability to use failures. In fact, he later received the privilege shared by only three other men in history, which is writing one of the Gospels. God chose a failure to do that chose peter and, and 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 took him out of the muck and mire of his failure and used him as well he will do the same with each of us With each of us we then hear of someone called jesus justice and this is the only mention of him in the entire bible he's held up with by paul as one of only three fellow workers for the kingdom of god who were jews and although this is the only mention of him in the new testament think of the privilege of that mention Okay, out of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of believers at that time, God chose him to remember, to be remembered, not only in the book of life, but in the book that would be reviewed by millions of Christians throughout time. And remarkably, God promises us that our names will be likewise remembered, having been written in another very important book, the book of life. In Paul's reference here to the kingdom of God, We see, again, Paul is speaking of a real kingdom. Not just a spiritual kingdom, but a real kingdom. He speaks of an actual king, Jesus of Nazareth, and a redeeming, governing role by that king. The kingdom has already been established, but its consummation is going to be in the future when King Jesus comes again. In Paul's view... To work for the kingdom is to spread the redemptive reign of God and Jesus Christ by forming churches throughout the Roman Empire. What's the view for us? The view for us to do God's work is to share the truth, to be a blessing, to be lights and salts in this dark and sinful world. So Paul holds him up to us as an example of that. And now Paul brings up Epaphras again. We met him in chapter 1. He was most likely the founder and pastor of the church at Colossae. He was the teacher of this congregation, was a faithful minister of Christ on behalf of the church, and told Paul the church's love in the Spirit. He would also have told Paul the challenges faced by this church and the false teachings of that time in that era. So, Paul says, well, Epiphras sends his greetings, which would have been joyously received by the church. Okay, recently talked to Mark. Mark says, hi. Make you feel good? Yes. Recently talked to Eli as well. Eli says, hi. Make you feel good? Yes. Okay, Epiphras says, hi. How's it going? All right. They know him, it encourages them. Paul describes Epiphras here as an example of a true pastor. He's a man of constant, intense prayer in his pastoral care for his church. Any pastor needs to be a man of intense prayer, struggling with God, as we, as we described last week. This prayer sounds remarkably like Paul's prayer in the first chapter. He describes Epaphras' prayer as wrestling or struggling, and his prayer is that the church may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, which is my prayer for everyone here, which will be the new pastor's prayer for everyone here. And it should be the prayer for each of us as we pray for this congregation. Perseverance in the journey of faith is essential, and Paul speaks of it often in his letters. The pathway to this perseverance is prayer, both personal prayer for your own things that you're praying about that you desperately want God to answer, but also having other people praying for you. Because I know that people pray for me, and I feel that, and I see that happen. I see the effect of it on Sunday morning when I preach. Because words come that I didn't think about, and thoughts come that I didn't really think about. But God does that because there are people praying, and Paul's telling the congregation this is what Epiphras is doing for you. He's praying for you. Be sure to pray earnestly for Dirk and Katie as they prepare for coming here to be our pastors. They need those prayers not only to preach, but to adjust to life here in small town South Dakota coming from the big city. They need those prayers just to know God's will and, and get the strength to be able to carry that out here in this congregation. A loving congregation to be sure, but an area where they know no one, they have no friends, they have no family, and we're going to have to be that to them, which is our job as the church anyway. And I know in this congregation, which loves better than most congregations that I've ever seen, that will happen. But we need to pray on that. We need to wrestle with God for prayer that He paves the way for them, He makes it easy. So Paul has described the will of God as His redemptive plan to include Gentiles in the people of God. That was the mystery that not only the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And Epaphras is praying that they remain true to their confession of faith in the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. And for that reason, he wrestles with them in prayer. Now, we've noticed that prayer is prominently mentioned throughout this letter to the Colossians. Clearly, Paul regards prayer as more than just an activity to engage in casually, or an activity which is something supplemental to preaching and teaching. In Paul's mind, the prayer is a part of the work itself for the minister, for the pastor. It is in prayer that the battle is fought and won. It is in prayer that Satan is taken on and overcome by the power of Jesus Christ and his spirit. And Paul wants the Colossians to know that Epaphras is working hard on their behalf, but also on behalf of the other churches in that area. You remember the very first sermon, there's three churches in this valley, and Paul is telling them that Epaphras is praying for all of those churches as well. He probably pastored those churches and and established those churches, Epaphras did. Well, Paul then next sends greetings from Luke. Okay, we all know Luke, the beloved physician. He's identified as a doctor. He has a special relationship with Paul. Most people think that the we sections in acts are Luke's personal sign of accompaniment with, with Paul. As you see that it changes from third person to second person. In addition to this reference, Paul, Luke also appears at Philemon 24 as a co-worker of Paul and in 2 Timothy 4.11. And if you take into account these references and the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke is one of the most significant voices in the apostolic area. And so these final greetings to the Colossians that are reading this include the writers of two of the four gospels. I mean, imagine getting a letter from one of the writers of the gospel saying here's what you need to do we're encouraging you we're praying for you and that's what Paul is telling them that you are in good company you are in good company now Demas is the next guy and little is known about him except that he ministered to Paul in this imprisonment it's believed he's the Demas who walked away from the faith out of love for the world in 2 Timothy four ten. but at this point he's a co-worker with Paul and his failure to Paul walking away in favor of the world calls to mind Judas with Jesus who walked away from Jesus. Okay. And it is a reminder that abandonment is not necessarily a reflection on us. Okay. Just because people walk away from us is not necessarily a reflection on us. The two greatest leaders in the world or that the world has ever known had those who failed them. And it can happen to anyone. And Paul, tells them this, tells them about Demas, and we read later about this, and we get an encouragement about that. Paul and Timothy now greet the church in Laodicea and in one particular household. Now, most translations use the name Nympha and say the church in her house. Now, this is kind of tantalizing, actually, in that it would seem to go against what's been written here and in Paul's other letters pertaining to a woman's authority and role in the church, right? Seems to be. And we don't know what the answer to that is but we do know that there was a church in this person's house a number of early manuscripts use the word or the name nymphus which is the masculine term but in any event it is clear that paul recognizes that the church is not the building it's the body of believers that gather to worship and fellowship in the name of jesus christ in essence all churches are house churches colosse probably worshiped at philemon's house It appears that Laodicea worshipped at Nympha's house. And we saw Lydia in the book of Acts had a church worshipping at her house as well. So Paul next instructs that this letter be read to the church of the Laodiceans and that they also read the letter from Laodicea. Now the majority of Bible commentators believe the letter of Laodiceans was actually the book of Ephesians. And while it's interesting to speculate on that, and you see we've actually looked at the book of Ephesians a few times in our sermons, and we've seen the parallels that exist between them, and that's really interesting, but that's not the important point. The important point is that these letters were meant to be circular. They were meant to be intended, or they were intended for several churches. And Paul intends that his letters be read aloud to the assembled churches, but because he's sending them to other churches as well, he meant them to be authoritative. That people were to know that this is the word of the Lord. Okay? We saw this in the beginning of this particular book, and Paul's intentions that his letters be authoritative would probably be the primary reason that l- these letters were preserved and that they were eventually adapted as adopted as part of the canon. But just as importantly, the two letters were important to the two churches, not just because of the doctrinal matters in them, because the two churches the two congregations should be important to each other they should be sharing things back and forth do we hold we hold other congregations in such regard or do we say well yeah you know they don't believe the right things or they're they're a little bit different do we hold these other congregations of the church of jesus christ in the same regard as paul is suggesting here when he does the circular letter to these different churches there well, Paul next gives specific instructions to Archippus. Archippus was a member of the family of Philemon, and he lived in Colossae as well. And it's likely, as I said, that the Colossian church met at Philemon's home. Paul does not describe this ministry, um, which has been entrusted to Archippus, and we're not told why he had to be admonished. It says, see, did you fulfill the ministry that you've gotten? Okay. That's why someone would be talking to me. Make sure you do that, okay? You've got to make sure you carry that out, okay? It's possible that he was the temporary preacher while Epiphras was gone. There's similarity to the language in 2 Timothy 4, 5, where Paul admonishes Timothy, also a young man, that he was to do the work of an evangelist and be the pastor at that time as well. But we know he's been given some instructions by Paul. I don't think I'd want to be admonished by Paul, honestly, but nevertheless. Then Paul writes in his own hand a personal message to the Colossians. When he asks them to remember his chains, he's not just asking them to put him on their prayer list. Paul is evoking this Old Testament sense of remembering. Remembering is a way of bringing others into the presence of God. The name Zechariah meant Yahweh remembers. God remembered Hannah because she pleaded with God to remember her And so God gave her one of Israel's leaders, Samuel. Nehemiah wanted God to remember Israel's good deeds, to bless them. And he wanted God to remember the enemy's wicked deeds, to conquer them. The prophets asked God to remember the covenant promises to save and sanctify Israel. Not that God would forget, but the remembrance is a call to memory, but it's also a call to action. Israel is to live faithfully by remembering God's covenantal love and faithfulness. And most famously, Jesus commands the disciples that when they are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they do so in remembrance of Him. Remembering is not just a mental exercise that Paul wants them to engage in, it is making the past present so that it can be effective in the present. We remember Christ's Last Supper to make it present now for us now, and it's effective in the present now by remembering it. It's an activity, not just a mental thing. And so Paul wants to bring the Colossians into the presence of God and make those that the Colossians love him Paul wants the Colossians to make Paul visible to God as well by lifting him up in this remembrance kind of prayer. Paul talks about remembering in prayer in all of his letters. And remembering for Paul is more than a mental recollection. It is lifting his friends and his churches up before God, and he's asking the Colossians to do the same for him here. And Paul's final words, grace be with you, also have rich meaning. Grace has been the subject of this entire letter. He has talked about grace throughout this entire letter. Paul has emphasized the undeserved love of God in Christ Jesus and all that follows from it, including our salvation and our eternal life. We get that from grace. But also, grace is the object of the letter which Paul has written. It's meant to be a means of grace this letter has. Not merely to describe grace, he wants the letter to be grace to these people that are receiving my mic went out yeah. is it back yeah. so do i have to go back and start at the beginning yeah. or it's, <laughs> because it's getting late okay it's getting late all right so paul is talking to a young church and we're not necessarily young because i look at the quilt there and we're what 30 years old or so well, close to 40 right 40 years old but we are a young church we are a young church There are people coming all the time to this church to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be built up by the people in this church. And so Paul writes this letter to the Colossians but also to us to instruct us how to be truly grateful to God and to advance to maturity as Christians and as human beings, to be truly human in the image of God, which is how God created us. And we can only do that through being in Christ Jesus. And God invites the Colossians and us to adoration, to gratitude, and love. And he he invites us to enjoy the reconciliation between the world and himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and to grow into the full and rich human life of the new age and to just enjoy God, to be full of joy at being in his presence and doing what what he wants us to do Psalm 1611 says, You have shown us the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The path of life is Jesus Christ. Fullness of joy is available only through him. And today, God invites you to enjoy the reconciliation between him and the world through the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you have never done so, confess your sins to God, repent, turn from them, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved, you will have this eternal life, you will have joy in Jesus Christ. So in this book, Paul puts to rest those false teachers, those false doctrines, and he said that God's good news is that not Jesus and something else is sufficient, But it is Jesus only that is sufficient. Through Jesus Christ, God is restoring everything that sin ruined. It's not through Jesus and fill in the blank with whatever psychological or social theory is going on. It's through Jesus Christ only that God is restoring everything that sin ruined. Curtis Vaughn wrote that Colossians tells us that Jesus is God's son. The object of Christian faith, and these are all citations from the book, which I won't do the numbers. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. He's the image of God. He's the Lord of creation. He's the head of the church. He is the reconciler of the universe. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. Under him, every power and authority in the universe is subjected. He is the essence of the mystery of God, and in him, all God's treasures of wisdom and knowledge lie hidden. He is the standard by which all religious teaching is to be measured. The reality of the truth foreshadowed by the regulations and rituals of the old covenant. And by his cross, he has conquered the cosmic powers of evil. And following his resurrection, he was enthroned at the right hand of God. Our life now lies hidden with God in Christ. But one day, one day, both he and we will be gloriously manifested. And that's our hope in Jesus Christ. And that is the book of Colossians. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for teaching us about Jesus Christ. Thank you for teaching us that he is all, he is in all, he is through all, he is before all, he created all. And for some reason, Lord God, you have chosen us to be in him. Lord, what a Awesome responsibility, that is. We pray that you would give us the ability to carry that out. We pray that you would be with us this week as we go into the world, spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless this congregation, that you would prepare us for the times ahead, and that we would reflect on this book, that we might know what you would have us do, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.